Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. June 17, 2018, Episode 136, Bonus Edition, Coffee One. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Coffee Maker's Corner. Uh, yeah, you're at the right show, but for this episode, we're doing something a little bit different. This is Kevin England, your host of the Beekeeper's Corner podcast, and I've been talking about this episode since last November, and the day has finally come. If you're new to the program, let me say that sometimes I release bonus episodes of various topics about beekeeping to go along with our regular cadence of episodes that have a regular format. I release the regular format episodes on a bi-weekly basis if the schedule allows. And on the in-between weeks, if I happen to have some extra footage of something, um, maybe a recording or an interview, something a little bit different about beekeeping, as special content, I release those as bonus episodes or sometimes I call them sidebars. The clue in this episode that this podcast is going to deviate from beekeeping from the first time in history, there's a beekeeping tie-in to this episode. The two of us that are talking, David Waldman and I, are both beekeepers, but we also happen to share a secondary affinity for coffee. Now, David is... Hmm, how do you explain David? He's like a scientist coffee guy, and I'm just a plodding old hobbyist with a simple air-popping machine coffee brewer guy in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> so as a coffee drinker, a person who appreciates coffee, I know that there's a certain science to get a good brew and roast your own beans. And when you roast your own beans, you source green beans, you cook them in a whatever manner you'll hear us talk about this during the show uh, to roast them and then you grind them and brew them and all of that I have questions if you've ever done this you probably have questions too but even if you're just a plain old coffee drinker or someone interested in the science to hear somebody talk about the craft of how to do something this episode is for you I know that uh, David has a special store in Lambertville, which is a nearby town to us, where he does coffee production, and many times a year he's off to some place to source coffee, and he's just a fanatic about it, in a good way. And what I want to do is, before you start listening to the episode, because we drop right in, let me tell you what you are going to hear if you stick around. If not, you can come back next week. We'll have a regular same old beekeeping format uh, episode for you. But in this episode, one of the things I wanted to do is discuss with David how to roast. How do you get a good cup of coffee? Coffee is a mix of the right product, the right temperature with water, and the process. But there's so many nuances to it to get a good cup of coffee. 
and I went with a ton of questions. So much so that you can see this episode's going to be about almost two hours, and it's the first of two. The second one is not as long. So in this one, we talk about, and we literally brew a cup of coffee and talk over it, and we discuss about roasting beans and how beans are sourced and whole number of topics on the particular aspect of coffee. Two weeks from now, I'll release Coffee 2, which is a literal episode of us roasting coffee in his shop and going through the process and talking it over and discussing about different coffee machines, different brewing methods, different equipment for grinding, pretty much anything you want to know about coffee, except for brewing. That's going to be something we're going to do as a second episode somewhere down the road. So one thing I should do before we head into the episode, I want to describe David's shop. It's called Rojo's. It's in Lambertville, and it's a very popular happening place. You walk in the front door, and there's a typical coffee bar on the right-hand side with folks who make you products. To the left side are a bunch of comfortable coffee house seating and as you hear there's music playing like a typical coffee house but that's about where typical ends in the back there's a bunch of equipment racks where you can look at different equipment for sale and you'll hear david and i at some point walk over and start talking about things he's literally taking products that he offers for sale to people who are passionate about coffee and he'll tell you as you hear um What's good, what's not good, what he likes, what he supports, things like that. The second part of the building on the one side, and you'll hear us open up coffee bins. He has these large, um, I'm just going to call them drums, and he pops the top off and it's loaded with green coffee from all over the world. It's amazing. Opens it up, we smell it during the episode, we talk about the quality of the beans, where they're sourced from. He has racks and racks and racks and pallets of coffee off to the side. And then in the back is his mad scientist lab. He has different lab equipment, as you'll hear some of his uh, equipment being used as we talk about coffee, things that measure weight and water and other aspects of it and then the centerpiece of the program are his two coffee roasters that are in the in the building so all of this is in the coffee room and when you go to uh, get a cup of coffee there you might see them doing training because they do different uh, seminars for for how to taste and how to brew and how to source and other things about coffee but they also roast the coffee right there in the building and he has a large coffee maker or coffee roaster which he'll talk about he has a small drum roaster and again i'm i'm not doing this justice by giving a description because there's tons of other equipment in there so anyway let me talk about the fact that this is a working coffee house at some point People walk up and ask him questions, people who work for him. Uh, he goes behind the counter and does a couple things. 
I did my best to edit all the episode parts out that weren't relevant, but I also wanted to capture the essence of the day. It was just two guys, similar to the concept of two guys sitting around talking about beekeeping. This is two guys sitting around talking about brewing coffee. And the good news is I know enough about it to ask a lot of questions. <laughs> Simple questions like what makes a good coffee brewer for a person at home and things like that. So even if you just like to drink coffee and you want to know how to get good coffee, um, that's in there. So without any further introduction, we start with Dave does a pour over and we discuss the coffee and taste. And then we venture into topic after topic after topic after topic all the way through. As I said, this is the first of two episodes. We'll come back with the second episode where we literally brew coffee and talk about process and other things in that episode, including what equipment to buy and what type of recommendations Dave has on how you grind coffee and other things. So I'll be back at the end of the episode with a couple um, comments, but there's one last thing is a coffee house, coffee room, is loud sometimes. You hear them banging in the background as they're making coffee. Sometimes the lids pop open and they make a large, large sound. I did my best to go through and edit all of that stuff down. Uh, the sound of the recording is okay. It's reasonable. But again, I'm I'm a beekeeper. I'm not a, well, I guess I am a podcast producer. I'm not a mixer guy, so bear with uh, the quality of the audio. But again, I think there's so much really cool information that you could geek out for coffee for just about two hours here in this first episode, and I hope you enjoy it. So I'll be back after it's done to uh, add a couple comments. With no further delay, this was recorded November 2017. This is David Waldman at Rojo's Coffee Shop, Lambertville, New Jersey. Kalita pour over. This is one of the most. This is one of my favorite. You preheat everything and then you rinse whatever residual contaminants from the paper manufacturing process or on the filter, so you get a weird taste. How hot is your water? Two hundred five. Yeah. By the time it hits the air gap, it's 200, 199. You put that in the kettle over there, right, that you had? Yeah. Um, these is something I co-designed with somebody in Canada. It's volumetric, so you don't have to use a scale. Normally, you would use a scale to preserve the proper soluble's extraction rate. You want to have a proper ratio of coffee to water. And, of course, it also matters that that the particle size is right, so we're calibrating our grinders. So you have something that has a, because people can't see it, it's, it's a device with a cap on it and it's got a spout and what you're doing is wetting, wetting the filter. Yeah, it's a gooseneck, it's a custom designed solid copper gooseneck kettle that gives you micro precision focus of the water where you can control the turbulence with which the water hits the coffee 
in very precise spots. And you'll see when I pour it, I'll describe it to the listeners. But we have a whole series of these in different sizes that we I actually helped design them. And the second generation that I designed is um, induction stove capable, which is really cool because then you can get rid of having to depend on a digital water kettle like the Bonavita. Thank you. So we'll dump this. We won't do it today, but I could pull out a near-infrared refractometer and show you the results of why everything we're doing is important. Okay. Uh, to get a soluble extraction coefficient of 21%. So now I'm just going to freshen up the water. Uh, the purpose of preheating this to do that is to get the thermal up. Yeah. Because it's a heat sink at first. So we, we put in 210 degree water, which by the time it hits the air gap from the transferring kettle into this, it's probably 205. And then by the time this hits the air gap, I'm probably not even getting 200. So since this is a conical flat bottom filter, mm -hmm. as opposed to a pure conical filter, particle size is ever so slightly larger to avoid over extraction. So you go into the center, you do a spiral. I go counterclockwise, not because it matters. And then you do maybe 10% of the, of the weight, and then you wait 30 seconds You'll see the gurgling and the expansion and the release of carbon dioxide. Um, that's called, excuse me, the bloom. So we're waiting for the bloom. And then it's starting to come through here, so we'll continue. For each topology, there's a different technique for extracting and for pouring. Here I typically start in the center, work my way out kind of gently cover everything, work my way back into the center, stay there for a second, and give it time to come through. If it were a pure conical, I would not stop pouring. I would pour for the entire duration, okay. for two minutes. But this has a totally different topology, the way that the particles migrate, and the way that the fine particles flow. There's different considerations that require me to. Is there a volume of water that more water creates more extraction faster? Or? There are easily 35 or 40 factors, including in no particular order, things like particle size, water temperature, water composition, the turbulence of which the water is poured, the topology of the bed of grinds, the filtration medium, the ratio in weight of coffee grinds to water, etc. The pulsing of the water, which is a subset of the turbulence for the pour. So in a nutshell, we eliminate as much of these as we can. Like we manufacture our own water here to a controlled total that's all solid composition. I use refractometers to know what the particle size should ideally be for the coffee for this water. So, to answer your question, it's, I'll answer it in steps. The, 
the lighter the coffee is roasted, and we tend to roast delicately, the higher temperature you need to get more extraction. So if you have a decaffeinated bean whose cell structure has been brutalized, not only by the decaffeination process, but then by the roasting of the decaffeinated bean, you have to be really careful not to use water over 190, 195 degrees for fear of over-extraction, and you'll get extreme bitterness of the result. Mm -hmm. um, with our beans, you eat about as hot as you can get. So the recommended range is usually 195 to 205. I do what I can to get close to 205. Ideally, and I've experimented with it, ideally I would have a pressurized system delivering water that's boiling in a tank delivered under pressure so by the time it comes out and hits the air gap it would give me that 205 but all the systems I've seen and the ones I've worked on they're just they're not quite there and I think it's a rounding error the the benefit you would get from going that extra mile is probably not even noticeable sensorially by palate so the other part of your question relating to the volume of water, how does that matter? You can do what's called a bypass pour where you can just include a certain amount of water in the ultimate result, but rather than pouring it through the beans, you bypass it and get it into the receptacle at the end that'll reduce the um, soluble extraction percentage from a higher number to a lower number. But it's not, in my mind, as good a way to go because you don't get the binding of the organoleptic molecules. You don't get the flavor ion exchange as efficiently as you do when it has to address each molecule of water that passes through it. And you can see it's slowing down a little bit in the outflow because this is probably way more information than you wanted. It's okay, keep but, going. <laughs> yeah, but the modality of the burrs that grind the coffee are typically proprietary to the manufacturers, but just about every grinder is bimodal or trimodal, which means the output is two or three different size particles of coffee to give them their so-called special sauce, where there's an exponential relationship between size of beans and surface area. So the idea is you want to have more surface area to have more efficient extraction, but when the particles get too fine, and they're called fines, F-I-N-E-S, then you're at risk for those particles migrating through fluid dynamics towards the center and blocking the holes and slowing down the exit process. And then you're at risk for over-extraction. So there's a whole movement right now, and I consider this all trends. I just think it's lack of proper engineering. But there's a whole group of fanatics who think monomodal extraction is where it's at, and they try to get flat burrs that only produce one particle size, when I blind taste them, that's not an interesting taste at all. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not interesting to me. I really want a well-engineered bimodal burr to get a taste the way we want it. So I just finished pouring the last of the water. is from um, my trip. This is uh, Lyo Taraga. It's a very small uh, area of producers at very high elevation. It's something like almost 7,000 feet above sea level, which is 
unheard of for coffee. I try to buy the highest elevation coffee I can because it has cooler nights. Microclimatically, you get a smaller, denser bean with higher acidity, more flavor, more sugar. And it's later in the season, so you get your coffees way later than anybody else from a given region. But to me, it's worth the wait. So this one is a very small group of growers. They probably have less than a half an acre each, and they come together to a meticulously maintained washing station. And that's where all the magic happens. When did you pick this up? This came in in August, July or August. But it was based on my origin trip. I go every January, February to travel and explore and look for this kind of quality bean. So I, I go every year. I'm actually planning my trip for January right now. How much coffee have you had today so far? Maybe three or four ounces, not very much. Yeah. I don't drink a lot of coffee. It just has to be really, it has to be good. Yeah. But I'm not like cranking it out. Sometimes I have a shot of espresso, sometimes I have five, six ounces. That's, I enjoy it, and I never put anything in it, of course. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, in a nutshell, our goal as an artisanal roaster, a micro batch roaster, is to offer coffee to our customers that doesn't require any additives, that stands on its own, even when it cools <clears throat> down at room temperature. Yeah. Because heat is the enemy of your taste buds. Heat will mask and obscure flavor. It'll drive the aromatics, but you won't be able to taste it. Your taste buds are happiest when things are 70 or 80 degrees. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, and it works the same way with cold. If you taste something, if you taste gelato, which is 20 or 30 degrees warmer than American ice cream. If you taste a I'm oversimplifying it, but if you taste a, a warmer temperature version of an ice cream compared to the colder temperature, the warmer one is going to taste so much better yeah. in terms of mouthfeel and just depth of flavor. That's why melted ice cream tastes better, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it starts to melt, that's when it really... My secret is, I, depending on how cold it feels to me if I pull it out of the freezer, I'll microwave it, yeah. which is a no-no for seven or eight seconds. Just, you know, so it won't break the spoon, but it'll be the right temperature. But then unless you and your friends or whatever can finish that whole pint, you're at risk for it frosting yeah, over. Right. Yeah. So if you smell this, it's really aromatic. It's very fruity and very berry-like. Roasted almonds. Yeah. A little bit of tamarind. Chocolatey. I definitely get fruit, a lot of fruit yeah, from yeah. it. Yeah. And this is a washed bean. So explain that washed bean. Yeah. So. What do you mean by that? Yeah. There's, depending on what part of the world you're in, there's a plethora of really confusing ways to describe how a bean is processed. In Costa Rica, they might call it honeyed, and they have color codes for the degree of fermentation, which is what honey is. In Ethiopia, they call it natural, which means it's fermented on the vine. 
in, in a, which means they didn't pick the fruit. See, coffee is the pit. It's the two seeds that face each other in the pit of the fruit called a cherry yeah. that shouldn't be picked until it's absolutely ripe. If it's a red bean, it should be just luscious, dark red, no sign of unripeness. But there are beans that are also golden and yellow, depending on, the, you know, there's golden bourbons. There's all different kinds of beans. But the, the enzymes and the sugars in the pulp of the fruit that surround the bean. Mm. Wait, that time I got a lot of chocolatey. There's a notes. ton of chocolate in here. Yeah. yeah. There's a little bit of cocoa and a little bit of milk chocolate. Two different kinds of chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. I got a really cocoa... I'm, on the finish. On yeah. the finish, yeah. That's interesting because you know what? Who takes the time to drink their coffee like this? You know what I mean? I wish to, people to the would, point but, that you. Yeah. But that's what I do because that's what I do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly drinking a cup with as many neurons turned on or whatever sensorially to be able to taste analytically what it is I'm tasting. And a cup of coffee, depending on how you brew it, can taste different and can accentuate or obscure different nuances and complexities depending on how you brewed it. The shape of the filter, the particle size, the water composition. If I travel, I have to travel with the copper kettle. Yeah. Um, I have to travel with my stuff. I can only imagine, right? Yeah. It's like I don't care about the clothes. So so let me ask you, do you go to other, if you're in Seattle, do you go to coffee shops or? Oh, yeah. 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 There's some really good ones. You know them, right? Yeah. But but if you're going to Sheboygan, (laughs) would you go into a coffee shop? If I've done my research and I come up empty, I'm in my hotel room or at my Airbnb or at my friend's house. Um, Depending on how light I want to travel, I'll take an AeroPress which is one of those piston-driven yeah. things designed by the inventor of, like, the Frisbee. It's a brilliant guy. Um, and it's basically a piston with holes. You can use paper filters. I use these special laser-etched stainless steel filters so I don't have to worry about carrying paper filters. And then I carry a Japanese ceramic burr hand grinder that nests inside the outer cylinder so the footprint is minuscule yeah it's tiny nice it's like it's like this big it's maybe three inches diameter by four or five inches tall and then i bring that a smaller version of that copper kettle we looked at earlier that we used to make this cup and then depending on where i'm going i might bring a scale which you don't really need if I'm traveling ultralight because the kettle is calibrated for a certain way. The kettle's not calibrated for the AeroPress, which is why I often bring uh, a scale. Yeah. Do, do you uh, grind before you leave? Oh, no, 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 never. So then you take a grinder with you? Yeah. I bring sealed bags of just roasted beans, yeah. which really shouldn't be ground. Most beans aren't good until the day two or day three because the carbon dioxide off-gassing is mm-hmm. way too accelerated. Um, so I'll bring beans and I'll know the only thing the only thing I won't bring unless I really 
sometimes I'm more fanatical than others, believe it or not, <laughs> is the water. The water's the biggest wild card when you're traveling. Yeah. If you're traveling domestically or throughout the more civilized parts of the world, like Europe and the Americas, you don't have to worry about water so much. But when I travel to Africa, the waters are all over the place. And and you're only, of course, drinking bottled water anyway. Um, but the total dissolved solid composition is generally no good for water for the most part. So I have these pre what, what do you mean by that? That's the minerals and whatever that's inside the water? Yeah, the mineral composition. You want ideally, depending on your, your taste philosophy, anywhere from 120 to 150 parts per million of total dissolved solids. And so how does a regular person know that they're, they have that in their water? We have... Uh, they don't. They don't. They don't. If they buy, you just know that you either t you taste good water or what. But what do you think yeah. about the you know? You well, there's a meter that we have. This is used by water chemists. It's called a Myron L. It's a really expensive way. Yeah. And I often travel with it to determine the parameters of water to know its suitability. But there are tricks you can play. If you have this or take this with you, or you can even take some. They're not as accurate, but you could take some. Uh, the equivalent of pH strips for tea, for total. Results. What about bottled water? Would you trust that anywhere you go? Um, bottled water you can generally trust for sanitary, but bottled water by no means tells you anything about its composition. It's got to be totally filtered to death, right? Well, that's not that's not the point. Some waters like Dasani and Smart Water, yeah. they're what I call designer water. So that's water that has been demineralized through reverse osmosis membranes right. to where the mineral content is stripped to where the water is as close as you can get to zero parts per million of total dissolved solids. Right. Then they inject they back, put it in, back in um, palate-optimized minerals, carbonated salts and stuff, and bicarbonates. Um, so they control the water profile that way. Right. And is that a reasonable water? But the thing is, it still doesn't tell you its suitability for coffee because it could be a nice designer water, but the pH could be, like everybody's into low alcohol Let me ask waters. a better question. Yeah. If I'm in a hotel room and I'm drinking the water and it tastes like chlorine and it's terrible, would I be better off with a bottled water? Not necessarily. Okay. Because, we, because you still aren't addressing the issue of its composition. Yeah. The I just can't stand the taste of chlorinated yeah, yeah. water. I, I have well water at home, right? So You probably have, you're in the Hopewell Ringo's area, yeah. so your aquifer is extremely high. It's well over 400 parts per million, yeah. which means you're never going to get a good cup of coffee unless you titrate it down with distilled or reverse osmosis water okay. to drop the total dissolved solids from, say, 400 to 150. Which is what I have a lot of my customers do. I'll have my customers bring in water from their tap. I'll let them run it. I'll say, run your cold water tap for 30 seconds. If you're going through a softener, find a way to bypass the softener and give me water that doesn't go through. Because softened water is really horrible. That has excess um, sodium chloride, yeah. which is salt, table salt, which you don't want. That, because that's the ion exchange medium. Um, but they'll bring it in. And then we'll work out a formula to tell them how to optimize it by adding what proportion of RO water. And okay. some of them go so far as to install an under-sink RO faucet for under 100 bucks 
where they can actually have a ready supply of RO to dilute down. RO, reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis, yeah. Yeah. Point. That's interesting because I love the taste of my water at home. And you could stand Good up my water. Good tasting water. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? There's but great... to your point, I never never thought of that from a coffee making standpoint. Totally different standards. Yeah. Yeah. Like here is, forget carbon footprint because I kind of violate it, but based on all the waters that are available through distributors within 50 miles of here, and I've tested hundreds of them in my lab, Vermont Pure is probably the most suitable for coffee. Yeah. So I have five gallon jugs of it delivered to my house every couple of weeks. Interesting. But the total dissolved solid composition in this is like 129, which is about as close as you can get to optimal 150. But they don't say a thing on their label. And then you get... Most people would have no clue about this, Dave. What? Would have no clue about this, I'm yeah. sure. What's interesting is, as you taste this coffee, it tastes like tea, almost. You get a tea, tea kind of uh, notes to it. So here's another water that we like, but not for coffee. I just, just sipping this. It tastes totally a little changing. like tea, almost. It shape shifts as it cools. Yeah. Yeah. It's changed. It feels... Now, for me, it's roasted almonds. Tamarind. I get tamarind. I'm getting tamarind pretty strong. So here, this is Mountain Valley water. It's sparkling. 74 parts per million calcium, 7.3 magnesium. So they literally have the... That's interesting. And this is what everybody... I wish everybody would do. Yeah. So just back of the napkin, 7... This is 300 parts per million. So forgetting that it's carbonated, it's twice the total dissolved solids that you, you want like 120 to 150. So you would have to dilute this 50%. So, so how does the dissolved solids impact the product? Dissolved solids, yeah. Um, what happens Why is... Why is high too much? And yeah, because they're competing for the, for the flavor ions of the coffee to exchange flavor and bind in the coffee. Water is... Uh, coffee is water soluble, which means that a fancy word, the organoleptics, or the primary organoleptics, which is a fancy word for the good taste um, molecules of coffee, they're exchanged in water with hydrogen. It doesn't happen when most of the molecules in the water are bound by minerals that aren't wanting to give up okay. or ready to give up their ions. There's a competition. So the ion, yeah, it's, it's competition. So the ion exchange is less active when the total dissolved solids are higher. So you don't get as good an extraction. At the extreme other end, when you have distilled water or reverse osmosis water, You'll have nothing getting in the way, and you'll have a hyperactive exchange, and that will taste pretty weird, too. That'll be too much flavor exchange. And there's also a secondary consequence of all this, which is if you're using espresso machines or boilers or things for heat for making coffee, even at your home, 
if you ever wonder why when you live in a place with typically with high mineral well water why your coffee machines only last a year or two what's happening is the calcium is scaling and covering your heating element and and okay. destroying the temperature probe and destroying the the brew valves we are extremely reluctant to sell espresso equipment to people who live in New Hope and Salbury because their water's off the charts. Yeah. It's over a thousand parts per million. And when we do it, we warn them that they can't use their well water, even their municipal water, and they also need to descale their equipment every three or four months carefully with like a 3% pharmaceutical grade citric acid. Yeah. Just to scaling that. So. When I built and designed this place, I built it with four waters underneath before we poured the slab. So the mechanicals, we have city water, which we use in our hand sinks. We have softened water, which we use in our tankless on-demand hot water heater and our dishwasher because it lowers the mineral composition and preserves heating elements and all of the stuff. Right, so you don't have that same problem in your... Yeah. Yeah. But it's not potable. Right. And then we have pallet optimized water that runs into our hot water tower, our espresso machine, our coffee brewer, and our laboratory tap. Mm-hmm. And then we have RO water in our lab also for experimentation. So we have four different kinds of water. Oh, that's interesting. You would never know, right, walking into a no. place like this. Nobody no. knows what's what's behind the scenes, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. So, so talk to me about, you were, you were on, um, you talked about, Grinders, blade grinders, no go, right? Uh, the Whirlybird, yeah, yeah. Too high in RPM, too much centrifugal force, giving you a huge disparity between chunks and powder. And it, and it also generates a lot of heat, right? Yeah. The high RPM is generally related to the heat. Um, I have one of those at home, and when I use it, when you're done grinding the coffee, the coffee is literally hot, yeah. right? What you want to do is pulse it yeah. to mitigate the centrifugal force and to mitigate the heat you pulse it in the on position then let go then wait and just if you pulse it you'll be in a much better position and then but you'll never get consistent particle size right so there's the blade grinders then there's burr grinders and they're flat burr and then they're conical burr yeah and depending on what you're doing and what you're wanting it for and your philosophy of flavor, there are some things that we prefer flat blade burrs, uh, flat burr plates for, and there's some things for which we prefer conical burr. And so I don't know what a flat burr, I've seen the conical so one. Is that, burr, does that look like a, you know, you grade cheese in a... In a it's uh, a ring. It's a ring, okay. And one ring is stationary and the other one spins. Oh, okay. And the ring has sharpened peaks and ridges. Yeah. And the finer the adjustment, the closer they are to each other. So the beans... It reminds the, me of a food processor. Space. You ever see the flat disc with the little, like a cheese grater? Yeah. But it'd be two of those on top of each yeah. other, right? So it's the same idea. So one is stationary and one is spinning. Yeah. Where, um, where and, a cone is literally a cone. And then in the conical burrs you have a female and a male they're three-dimensional yeah and again proximity along sidewall on the bottom there's three-dimensional proximity that determines uh the fineness of the particle size so if you if you're uh 
John Homemaker and you want to just on the weekend have a good cup of coffee. There's there's a person who goes that far, and then there's a person who goes the next step and buys one of these, right? Because I don't know anybody that has a, a grinder like that in their home. Everybody has the whirly gig ones, right? Not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. Um, people that care. Can about you buy a, a run-of-the-mill? Yeah, there's. Grinder? We got about fifteen this is in the sales business. Oh, I, no, this is what I want people to, to yeah. know, right? Because they're going to ask. Um, so this is an entry level. So we've walked over to your rack here that has a bunch of different equipment because people probably ask you this question 85,000 times a year, right? Yeah, yeah. And you have a display. Yeah. So we have manufacturers that we choose to work with directly. And rather than walk into a place like Williams-Sonoma or Best Buy or some of these places, where they have shiny, expensive stuff, yeah. and you ask a salesperson a question, and they have no idea what they don't know anything about coffee, or they're just trying to move widgets. So we're on the other side of the spectrum. We carry stuff that meets the following criteria. Number one, we can have a direct relationship with the manufacturer and source directly. We have ready availability of parts. We have direct access to the thought leader, chief designer of the company, because I'm always with my background in tweaking and industrial design, I'm constantly giving them feedback. And they're incorporating a lot of my tweaks into subsequent designs. Yeah. Um, and then the other most important one, the fourth factor is, it's gotta be best of breed, it's gotta really perform well. Sometimes that's expensive and sometimes it's a bargain. So when people walk in here and they know me, it's like, oh, if David carries it, he's vetted all the other stuff. And this yeah, is, right, okay. Yeah, so this is, I think, maybe 130 bucks, 230 It just goes up and up and up. These are um, conical burr electric grinders for coffee, everything from percolator to pour over. It won't really handle espresso. Then as you get fancier and you have more precision, like something like this, which is close to 500 bucks, the Vario, these are all Barazza grinders. This can handle espresso. And then we also have a line, which I don't have on display here. We have an Italian line called Maser that we sell, but they go up from about 600 bucks to several thousand dollars. And that's near commercial and commercial, which a lot of people use in their homes. So what I often recommend is back to your question of, what does Joe homeowner do when he wants to, he or she wants to have a really good cup of coffee, like on the weekend when they have some time to do it? I'm a huge advocate of hand grinders. Ah. Number one, they're way more economical, and number two, you get so much more precision for the dollar. So we have Zassenhaus. I didn't think you would go there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a fascinating choice. Yeah. So we have Zassenhaus, we have like a German hand grinder, we have Japanese Porlex grinders. Mm -hmm. We have the German Commandante grinders. We have the um, Idaho design Lido grinders. We have German Turkish grinders. We've got traveling grinders. And these are all really, they're better than pretty much all of these except maybe this $500 grinder. Right. And they run anywhere from 60 bucks up to 250 bucks. So like I travel, when I travel to Africa, I take one of these and it fits right inside my AeroPress. I take a Porlex. It's an adjustable ceramic burr that holds just enough coffee to make a, an air at like 23 grams. And 
It's amazing. And I often leave it there and give it as a gift to yeah. you know, the tribal people. Nice. Um, yeah. So I'm a huge advocate of hand grinders. If you found an antique, because these look like the ones that my grandparents used to have, right? Were yeah. They, are they better or not, not as good? Not necessarily. Or, no, just depend, they're all over the place. Yeah. Some of them are good, some of them are not. This is a family in Germany that's been making these for maybe 125 years. Wow. And they're pretty darn good if you take a peek. That's conical burr. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. Looks like a gear inside of a gear. Yeah. Or stationary. And you can yeah. adjust it with this wheel. Okay. Yeah. Neat. Uh, and they all work on the same principle. Like this one has ball bearings. It's German. It's like super precise. Yeah. It's really well made. The burrs are huge. They're often as big, if not bigger, than the burrs you see in these electric grinders. And when you want to make an adjustment, it's a really positive oh, yeah, right. click. Yep. Just really well made. Yeah, very cool. This is my favorite. We're looking at the Porlex one. Yeah, that looks nice. No, this is the Commandante. I oh, know, sorry. Yeah, Commandante. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, neat. Yeah, the Porlex is really nice. It's 60-something bucks. Super affordable. You can drop it. So anyway, what I would recommend for someone, you either want to brew it in a pot, and we have two, like a liter and a liter and a quarter. This is state-of-the-art, the best brewer in the Let, world. Let's go back and we'll talk about that stuff, yeah. right? It's, yeah. that's, a, that's a question itself. So brewing, you can brew in so many different ways. You can brew by the cup, which is what I often do. Um, or you can brew by the pot. Mm -hmm. Or you can brew by the carafe, you know, what's called a pour-over method, which is what we did. So for pour-over method, there's... Um, now, this is lukewarm at best and it really tastes different yeah what a difference you're you're right in yeah. that i call it shape shifting the flavor is actually shifting over time as it cools what happens is the perceived acidity the top notes will increase yeah but things driving the aromatics are diminished it's funny because i think most people would drink a cup of coffee and they'd immediately reach for a sugar but you're right i do taste the sweetness in this it doesn't and, and it doesn't need anything it. yeah you know there's certain there's teas, not a hint of bitterness what, what's funny is i remember going to india and they brought me i didn't the coffee in india that i had was terrible oh it is just terrible. horrible you need to drink tea in I couldn't india. stand it and i switched to tea if they if, unless they export most of the good teas well what was funny is i switched to tea and the tea there was just astonishingly yeah. good it was like this you know what i mean it just yeah. it, I, I learned really quickly drink tea when you're yeah, in yeah, india. yeah 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 and and then <laughs> the body and the flavor of the tea was just amazing yeah and i, I didn't drink another cup of coffee till i got back yeah, to the states yeah. That's absolutely the way to go. You got to figure out. And ironically, we have lots of customers who go like, "I'm just back from Guatemala, and I had the best coffee in the world." And I'm going like, "No, you didn't." Yeah. They they export that. You had like at best grade three. That's one step above what they would use for instant coffee, what they call soluble coffee. But it's the excitement of being somewhere, you know, on vacation or whatever. Where, where did I, I... I didn't like the coffee in India. The coffee in Italy was okay, but... I don't think it's better than mediocre. Yeah. 
I'm just back from two I, weeks. There. It's funny because I, you know, I go somewhere and I'm like, to your point, if I go yeah. to Guatemala or Puerto Rico or whatever, no, I don't know. Uh, we we wanted Puerto Rico to go has to a, great coffee, but it's not legally available in the United States. We we had um, mediocre coffee the whole time we were in Puerto Rico, and then at one point, someone in the hotel said, "Were you at the San Juan?" Or we were in San Juan when we were in the hotel. They had a, a person in the lobby selling locally sourced coffee and we said okay we're going to try it and it was from a plantation that was like an hour from the hotel it was so good that coffee was good and we tried to work a trip to go to a plantation while we were there and unfortunately the day that we were going to go it rained like monsoon rain and you know so one of the times when we get back there if it's still after the yeah, devastation they I've just went through it, but it's supposed to be amazing coffee it was really really good yeah yeah, so, so back to methods. I have... Um, so when we, just to finish your point, like when you're talking about temperature, yeah. when we cup, which is the equivalent of what a sommelier does for wine, mm-hmm. which is the analytical sipping and spitting with special silver spoons and all this stuff, we run stopwatches, and we typically don't make a decision. We don't have eye contact, no body language, no music, no one's wearing aromatics. It's all unscented, you know, deodorants and hair gels and whatever. Um, it's a whole protocol for which we I train my people. Um, we don't decide anything till 30 or 35 minutes of elapsed because we're looking for that cup that when it approaches room temperature is clean and sweet with no finish of bitterness and that has a lot to offer as it sits yeah. there. That's kind of what that's kind of what the point is. And it shifts. We're taking notes during the 35 minutes. We'll take three passes, sometimes four. I and it. you'll note the aromatics in the beginning, and you'll note the foundation in the beginning. But then as the temperature drops, using musical metaphor, there's treble, mid-range, and bass. Treble is, if you're a wine person, treble's the acidity, like the lemon, the citrus. The middle notes would be the fruit and nuts, and the foundation bass would be like caramel and chocolate. So it's inverse. The bottom foundational stuff is the stuff you'll hear first and it'll tell you, inform you about body. The middle stuff you'll probably catch within the first 10 minutes throughout. But the acidity won't start increasing until time passes. Yeah. You won't know the acidity until at least 15 minutes have passed. I got a lot of caramel out of the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Caramel is... The telltale of just solid roasting. That's the roasting. That's roasting. To be able to to have, convert the sugars and yeah, it's a convert. It's a it's part of the mallard reduction and uh, and caramelization and you're as you can a, almost have every you can almost have caramel in any good coffee if you know what you're doing as a roaster. As a taster, did you start out with one? profile that you looked for and then you've evolved over time like did you start looking I had for no profiles when I started rich chocolatey caramel notes and now you appreciate when you go oh there's a little fruitiness to oh, it oh yeah end, I, right? I mean saying. yeah at first has your has your complexity evolved yeah as you've, you've been doing this for how long yeah I've been roasting for 20 years maybe yeah yeah 20 years um starting in my basement at the house, I, yeah. I, when I started, I, I was 
I burned everything because I really <laughs> like that. I, I don't know if uh, I started with Sumatras. It's, and it's, it's a bit, it's yeah. a bit funny because I know people don't like like a Starbucks coffee, right? Because yeah. it seems burned or whatever. We call them Starbucks. I, the I actually don't mind that. I I always like that flavor for some reason. Maybe it's because when I first started roasting, I over roasted everything, and it had that yeah. burnt flavor to it. Um, but think about it. What's we call that? Charbucks. Yeah. So what what's happening is there are many reasons that contribute to a cup being bitter. And the chain of custody for the bean runs from the tree to the picker to the people who work at the wash stations to the packers, to the dryers, to the shippers, to the importers, to the roasters, to the baristas, and then the people at home who are making their cup. Yeah. So there's many opportunities to introduce a problem. You can get bitterness from drying the beans mechanically during the rainy season with too hot a temperature. You can get bitterness from grinding your coffee too fine on the homeowner side of making your cup of coffee by over extracting. You can get bitterness from the water composition being way out of spec. You can get bitterness from the water temperature being too hot. Okay. So there's many, many ways. You can get bitterness mostly from the roaster uh, baking the beans and charging the beans at too high a temperature in the beginning of the roast profile. So there's, there's a lot of finger pointing that can go on, and there's a lot of people in the formula that can be literally responsible for contributing bitterness to the cup. Let's assume you have a good roaster. Let's assume the beans are good. Most of the problem is on the cup preparation end where if you're doing a French press or a pour over, you boil the water and you didn't let it cool for a minute. And it's too hot. It also comes from the economical bean buyers who think, I'm going to get more out of the cup if I grind it a little bit finer. A bit of more further extraction. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens is you're, it's a recipe for over-extraction, the most common cause of bitterness. Over-extraction okay. means that you have exceeded the amount of solubles good tasting primary organoleptic solubles that the coffee has to donate to the cup. So the bean has a certain amount of flavor under optimum conditions that it can give to the cup. And it's usually 20-21% of the solubles. And assuming the particle size is right, as we were talking earlier, and the water composition is right, and you know, the water's not too hot. Under a good situation, if you have a good relationship of coffee to water, which varies on the brew cycle, it could be anywhere from 0.056 grams of coffee per milliliter of water to 0.067 grams of coffee to milliliter of water. That's called an updose. And it depends on things like is the filter flat? Is it cone-shaped? It depends on a ton of stuff. So that has everything to do with the output. So in a nutshell, 
if you weigh your coffee at home as opposed to which you should yeah which you should that's the first (laughs) you know maybe maybe when you're making maxwell house you just scoop it in but on the weekend you should be weighing your coffee maxwell house you can scoop because it's so designed what's called soluble coffee down to the particle size and the solubility coefficients all that stuff is just you can't screw it up let me make an analogy for you my father always told me you go to the paint store and you can look and there's the cheap stuff there's the really expensive stuff and then there's rust-oleum yeah rust-oleum was built for every man yeah yeah, right and uh to me maxwell house is not a great coffee, but it's the rustoleum of yeah, coffee, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, Everybody yeah, can yeah. make a cup of coffee with yeah. it. When I was a kid, I used to like eight o'clock coffee, and I remember when they used to grind like it. A and P. Yeah. yeah that was good now coffee. it's. I don't know. They switched. Obviously, they're yeah, not the yeah. same A and P that was my mother's uh, yeah. A and P. But you know, I don't. But that's one of the things that probably got me into coffee as a kid smelling it when my father yeah. got up and, grind, and was grinding it and that would wake me up I remember going to the A&P and one of the funnest parts was standing at the end when you grinder. were leaving and they would grind the coffee yeah. and for there's a lot of people who've never seen this you're literally putting your groceries in the bag and there was a big machine. Yeah, Do you remember this? I did it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they would grind the coffee before you left. there at the checkout line. And yeah, it was yeah, yeah. so good. Yeah. I remember smelling I that, that and it was like candy almost. <laughs> chocolateiness. That's probably one of the single most important factors that sucked me into the coffee world. That and my father assigning me the task of, as a young kid of making him Turkish coffee every night after dinner. Oh, yeah? And that was just so cool. That's what got me into it. Yeah. Talk to me about mocha loca, lava jate, you know, people mixing milk and all that oh, stuff. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, is this... When I go, you mean the barista stuff, the, yeah. all the espresso drinks? Yeah, I mean, I I'm not against it, and occasionally I'll do that, yeah. right? Most of the time I just ask for coffee, right? Yeah. But uh, We do quite a business internationally. There's quite a business for um, espresso drinks. There's the classical ones, and then there's the ones that have been sort of redesigned by Starbucks. Like an extreme example is you take a macchiato. Yeah. Macchiato is roughly a two and a half to three ounce drink with a demi-toss spoon of foam floated on the top and a shot of espresso, like a 20 gram shot of espresso. That's a classic macchiato. Right. Fast forward to the 80s and now the present day when you ask for a macchiato, it's like you almost roll in the garbage can on wheels and they fill it with high fructose corn syrup and caramel Comes syrup. in an eight ounce cup or bigger, right? Or 30, whatever, <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that has nothing to do. See, the answer to your question is, we have a philosophy that closely watches and preserves a minimum ratio of espresso to milk. If it exceeds that it, that ratio, we don't make that available as a drink. Yeah. So if it's less than 20%, espresso to milk which is why we don't make 16 ounce latte to go is there a uh, rule of thumb somewhere that you go and say this is what a true definition of this thing is yeah 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 any drink you get from us in ceramic which is our preferred way of serving it Mm -hmm. that is our standard so a 3.1 ounce french glass a picardie 
for macchiato. A 4.3 ounce Gibraltar for a Cortado. A 5.5 ounce for a latte. A 10.0 ounce um, Gino. But is there is there a standard, <coughs> like if you go to the American Coffee Association, they'll tell you this is how you make the traditional recipe? Yeah, there, there are what are called competition sizes yeah. that define those standards. Okay. And we abide by them. And it's international. Yeah. It's international. That's what I mean. There's an yeah. international standard. Yeah, yeah. Because you nowadays everybody has a blog, right? There's coffee blogs yeah. and whatever. Yeah. You go there and you read their thing for a macchiato and you, it doesn't look right to me. The proportions look wrong. But people are doing this, no offense to Starbucks, the Starbucks thing, right? Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's what yeah, they're yeah, used yeah. to. Yeah. I mean, there are hardcores that are going back the other way that when you walk in, their chalkboard shows coffee. Coffee with milk, coffee with chocolate. Right. So, and they abandon the notion that there's a name associated a name. with it. Yeah. They just have a size. It's like pick your size and pick your, you know, is it espresso? Is it espresso and milk? Is it espresso with a non-dairy? Is it espresso with chocolate and a non-dairy? Or so literally, they've taken away all the nomenclature and basically went categorically. Just tell me what you want. Yeah. Do you want it this big and what do you want in it? Okay. And that's. It's a really interesting It is an interesting way to think about it. Where they've made it accessible to the public. They've dumbed it down in a way it's like... And what's confusing is a lot of people who are so Starbucks-oriented don't know how to behave in that situation because they know the drinks yeah, by name. Right. It's like, I want a venti. It's like, what is a venti? Like, people come in and say that. They say, I'm sorry, you got to interpret this for me. We don't, I don't even know what those mean. Because they've made caricatures of the drinks, like they're small, is bigger than anything we right, serve. Right. Because it that's where I was going with this, right? Yeah. Is that when I go there, it and violates I look at what all they our made, proportion rules. Ninety percent of it comes with like huge amount of whipped cream on the top. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, if we don't do that, we're about the coffee. Don't get me wrong. Occasionally, one of those goes really well, wouldn't you? you yeah, know, yeah. But uh, yeah. to me, that's dessert. That's not a. Yeah. You know. Let's check the uh, the temperature. Our machine's been on for a while, about an hour. So I'm going to turn down the gas. We're at two quarter column inches at 425. I'm going to turn it down to 1.5. I want our charge temperature. That's the temperature that you put the raw beans in. That's the temperature that's introduced into the chamber. I want that to be about 385 for what we're going to be doing. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to let it cool down just a little bit. So help me with something. You did a pour over. There's a French press. You could go to Williams Sonoma and buy a cappuccino machine, whatever. They all prepare the coffee extraction a different way. Some are under pressure. Some are under pressure and some are gravity fed. Yeah. If I want to cappuccino and I want a pressure machine. Mm-hmm. Can I, I have to buy one a machine, right? There's no way you could do that manually. Yeah, it No. Well, and then yeah, and then would, what is the What an interesting question. Yeah, walk walk me through this. This is an English design. <laughs> okay. of a pressure machine that is semi-portable. It's called a rock. It's really pretty darn clever. I have never heard. It looks like a coffee maker with wings. Yeah. (laughs) 
right? it's like a it's like a cork remover on steroids. Yeah, you think about it for that's like a wine that's bottle. a better example, a cork yeah. remover, right? Where you push the two sides down. Yeah, and so this just so you um, it's similar to a French press in that way. Yeah, and what what it's doing is you've got water and coffee. See here in the bottom. This looks like a gadget, Dave. There's a, there's <laughs> yeah, a silicone filter. filter. Yep. Okay. And then there's a um, a loose a plastic chamber. Yep. And what you do is I'm not having. It a looks lot. like this comes up somehow. This pops up and right. Doesn't that hinge make it so that it pops off or something so that you could take the? Yeah, but you sh there should be a way for the user not to have to do anything other than you know what I mean. Yeah. But anyway, you put your cup down here in yep. the bottom. You put your coffee grind in this chamber. Yeah. How do you get water in it? And then you pour water up to here. Okay. And then you wait about a minute. And then you apply manual pressure. And that goes a lot farther than you thought. Yeah, yeah. and that's your espresso. That's interesting. And I've blind tasted this against our $35,000 handmade machine, and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. You've got to know what you're doing, and you've got to experiment to do what's called the dialing in process. That's cool. Um, so what's the difference between this and a French press, so to speak, okay. right? This so is this sealed. Is, this is a sealed, enclosed, manually exerted pressure system. It's pretty clever. Of limited volume. That's going to give you a two-ounce drink. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you do a French press. How much does one of those cost, Dave? Out of that, curiosity. Um, <laughs> 200 bucks. Yeah, 200 Okay. And then you have these in all the different sizes. Mama Bear. I have one of the big metal ones with a, with a dual wall that yeah, keeps it. A Freeling, probably. Freeling, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're a Freeling. Yep. Distributor. So you, these come in 17 ounce, 12 ounce, 34, 51 ounce. This is called an immersion. Here, like that machine, you put coffee grinds in the bottom. Yeah. You put hot water in here. Do you do the pour over like you did? Uh, no. With the spout? No. Dump it in. Just dump but, it in. But I, since and it's, do a you three stir minute, it? it's a three minute extraction. Yeah. And I use like a bamboo. Uh, chopstick or some kind That's of. That's exactly what I do. Yeah, and I fill it up to a. I fill it one third, cover it to retain the heat. Yeah. Um, and then after one minute, stir it to break the crust. Go to two thirds. Wait a minute. Stir it to break the crust and stir it just a couple times, not vigorously. Yeah. And then top it up to the this band. Okay. On yours, you got to look inside because it's solid steel. Right. And then plunge it. And if your plunging meets no resistance, your particle size is too big. If you're like if afraid you're it's really going to explode, it if you're lean and heavy on it, you ground it too fine. You want it to go down about like this. Maybe in 15 seconds, you want. Okay. To be able yep. To, that's pretty typical. Yeah. Of my speed. And okay. That means you've got. So that's called immersion because it's that stainless steel fine mesh that at the very end of the immersion of the coffee in the water, you're separating out the coffee. Whereas in real time on a pour over, yeah. you're separating out the coffee in the water 
constantly because the coffee is passing through, the soluble coffee is passing through the filter medium. Whether it's stainless or paper or gold yeah. mesh or not, whatever yeah. it is, that's a filtration medium where the, the end product is passing through the filter as water is passing through it. So help and me with gravity. something. When, when you roast a bean, there's first crack, second crack. If you go too far, you never make go char. Us. We right? never go second crack. There's when, nothing we roast that goes. When you get to a bean, let's just play pretend, you go all the way to the point where the bean actually starts exuding oil and it gets shiny, right? Okay, that's called Spanish. If you cooked the bean that hard and then you did a French press, you'd have an oil slick on the top. Well, you have an oil slick on the top of any properly roasted bean. They're lipids. Different, different um, body, I'd say, is my term, depending on whether you do a pour over what or a French press. What do you mean by press. body? You mean the... the... I, I don't know. For me, I could taste those oils in the actual, especially if I roast it too yeah. far. Because like I said, There's I roasted it too far when I started. You might be associating those oils with the char. Yeah. So let's backtrack and figure yeah, out ahead. where do those oils come from. The bean is, is a cellulose structure with a kernel in the center. Okay. And the flavor molecules travel by capillarity from the center of the bean to the surface of the bean. Okay. On a, on a Rojo's roasted bean, this is our espresso. Take a look at it. These beans are two weeks old, and you'll see no spotting, no oil, no residue, yeah. no dropper. You'll see nothing. Okay? Yeah. That's espresso. So the first thing you should learn from that is the myth of espresso having to be dark, that's totally bogus. There's no meaning to that. Okay. It's all about the flavor. An extreme example is... A decaf bean, where that cell structure we're talking about has been brutalized by the decaffeination process, even here you barely see what's called spotting. I don't know if you can see that in the right light. There's two little specks of shine, um, and that's oil. There, you see that? Yeah, I see it. That's called spotting. So that's, that's incipient oil. So we're looking at a bean and it has a single dot of shiny oil coming through. And that oil has migrated from the center to the surface of the bean. Uh-huh. So under normal circumstances, using our roast philosophy the way we roast, that oil is almost never visible, even after 15 days. Okay. To bring home your point, that oil becomes visible the more heat you apply and the darker you roast it and the more time it's applied because you've broken down the cell structure and the highway, so to speak, the capillarity yeah. through which those oils can travel has been broken down to where it has a free and open pathway to go right to the surface. Okay. Interesting. So so I equate that to an onion, right? The more you cut an onion, the more you break the cells, the more you cry. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. In this case, you're really yeah, punishing the, the bean. And so I, that's uh, why I... Okay, fascinating. I was quoted in, it might have been a New York Times article some years ago. I kind of made it up on the spot, but I was saying, when you see 
shiny and oily beans, you walk away from them for one of two reasons or both. Number one, it means that they were over-roasted even if they're fresh. Like in the case of one of these big organic health food stores, who I won't name, who roast their beans on site, they often are known for putting out fresh roasted beans and they're oily. Which means something happened in the roasting process that made those oils release instantaneously within the same day they were roasted. So on the one hand, you get it from too much heat. On the other hand, so run away from the bean if it's oily That's because it's overheated. By the way, mine always look a little shiny, yeah. right? Well, I we'll, know I'm we'll over roasting. We'll do it. And then you run away from the bean if it's oily because it's stale. Because you can smell a stale bean. Yeah. If the oil's there, it's either because it was burnt or because the beans are so old that the oily fi- has finally migrated to the surface. So, yeah. so tell me about roasting coffee is many things that you roast that have good flavor are low and slow, right? Uh, I'm talking about uh, you're cooking a pot roast or something like that. In the, in the course of coffee, uh, would you say it's more heat over a short period of time, medium heat over a medium time? Yeah, yeah. Since you know, those how, terms how do you... don't mean anything, um, let's put some numbers to it. That'll probably give it more yeah. clarity. So most coffee that we roast is roasting anywhere from 13 to 15 and a half minutes. That's it. Okay. So we have maybe a two and a half minute spread depending on the density of the bean, the moisture content of the bean, the water activity of the bean, the size of the bean, which relates to how heat is imparted to it when it's tumbling in a drum that's rotating at 46 RPM. There's convection, conduction, and induction, different kinds of heat. Like we're using a drum roaster, which means that the drum is rotating, whereas you're probably using an air Air. conduction, which is derivative of Mike Sivitz's design. You're floating the beans on a cushion of air, totally different heat transfer than in a metal drum that's heated with flame gas-fired flame underneath as the drum rotates so is there a difference in the outcome can you achieve the same outcome different methods or does one method impart a difference my opinion that i tend to prefer drum roasting to fluidized airbed roasting i pretty much when i'm asked to blind taste i usually know the difference most of the time between i usually know the difference between drum and fluidized air and I tend to prefer drum. What's um, the difference? Can um, you articulate it? Yeah, yeah. Fluidized roasting was invented by a guy who I knew, who died maybe three years ago, Mike Sivitz, brilliant coffee chemist. It's what we call it a popcorn popper. The beans are floating in a cushion of air. I burned out three or four popcorn poppers before I got a real... Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I... Yeah, popcorn probably, popper for, yeah. for people listening is is an actual viable way to do it if you yeah, wanted yeah, to get I did started. It. I cheap. probably burned out three of them before I graduated yeah. to a more expensive drum roaster for home roasting yeah. called a hot top. The biggest difference typically between fluidized air and drum is the amount of time. You're typically going to be roasting your beans in seven to ten minutes. Yeah. Where um, 
in terms of... That's why when you said 15 minutes, I'm like, oh, I don't ever rest for 15 minutes. Yeah. My stuff would be charcoal. <laughs> yeah. So it's a function of the way most fluidized air thermostats run is that they're applying excessive amounts of heat in the beginning. So your caramelization, your malware reduction, everything having to do with preserving body, converting starches to sugar, and preserving acidity, it's almost impossible to achieve that in a fluidized air bed unless you have extreme control over all these temperatures. Okay. And that brings up the notion of latency. If you're going to boil an egg on an electric stove as opposed to a gas stove, which is the easiest way I know how to explain it, is you've got to anticipate heat retention and heat change on an electric stove, whereas with flame, you can turn on a dime. Right. So that's one of the major differences where in a fluidized air bed, I'm not aware that there's enough agility of the thermodynamics of the controls of the system to allow you to get a 13-minute roast. And if you're roasting your beans with enough heat to be burning them by seven, eight minutes, there's no way you're going to preserve acidity. There's no way you're going to preserve body. You're going to get what's called a baked bean where the body's going to be thin. And there's no way you're going to have the sweetness. All, all that stuff's gone. Okay. So it's a question of creating a profile that allows you to control and preserve those extremely critical moments of caramelization and malleable reduction. All that stuff, to my way of thinking, is something that you don't really preserve in the home roasting machine. Now, caveat and disclosure, I haven't actively looked at home roasting technologies probably in 10 years. Yeah. I know that Hot Top, I roast, I know a lot of the machines that I worked on are in their third and fourth generation, and you can control the profiles, you can go into a manual mode, and you very well might be able to get those 13, 14 minute profiles. My machine, you can adjust the temperature and the duration, and you can make it stages, multiple stages, as many as you want, so you can heat slow in the beginning for a long period of time. and. That's why I was asking about low and slow or, or whatever, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Is yeah. How do you want to start so it? So when we roast on this, um, I built a control box here with temperature probes. Mm-hmm. That's not different than what I did on my hot top. I, when I had a drum roaster, I put in a temperature probe and a variac to control the electricity that went through. Back then, that was the only way I could control the amount of heat. And that way, that was my way of hacking the system to be able to control the profile with gas you have all the control in the world because you're directly and right you're quickly you're up, controlling you're the heat. if you google cropster which is uh, a company that has made tremendous inroads into commercial roasting for data logging and automating roast profiles on commercial roasters and on sample roasters, you'll get an idea of what you can do with profiles. Where do you ultimately take the bean? How high? 
it's test really it's really dangerous to talk about temperatures because unless you have like a calibrated thermometer somebody's 400 might be someone else's 380 yeah okay that's the problem but i'll give you a rough idea let's assume that we're cracking at 400 so if i want so, so for those listening dave's drawing on a graph paper here for me so he can see what the profile looks like yeah so if it's going like this i'm like at around 400 let's say at nine and a half ten minutes yeah then back here i'm turning down the heat so by the time it peaks it's it's going up for another three minutes maybe five more degrees okay this is called development time this is key this is some of the most critical time there is from the time you hit the crack to the time you end. So, so what I see here is you started with something that's already heated, right? You yeah. put the beans in. When you put the beans in, it dropped the temp down because the beans absorbed the heat. It's like a heat, heat sink, right. And then slowly but surely, on a pretty steady incline, up to about 10 minutes, you got it to 400. And then you shut the heat off, but you have to carry over heat, which brings you up another 5 Right. It's somewhere around 14 minutes, 12, 13 yeah, minutes. Yeah, 13, 14, 15 You're there. Minutes. Now, yeah. if, I, if I'm doing it with a air machine, it's going to start cold unless I've... Is there a way to preheat it? Because um, that's one of the bigger mis, mis... No, I don't think so. That's a bigger shortcoming. Although that's, that's a curiosity. I never considered the matter. So, because you put the beans in and you turn the machine on. Right, so turn the machine on and don't put the beans in until it's where you want it to be. Do it backwards. You think Can the, you do that? I think the thing locks so you can't open. You don't want to get burned, right? I'll, I'll look. It's See an if there's a way you curiosity. can add beans after it's heated up. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I never considered it. I mean, that would be it. To my way of thinking, that would be the ideal. That's what you want. Yeah. To the extent that we're emulating what's going on in the drum roaster and maybe... My attempting to emulate that is lost. So here's another curiosity. You ever go camping and make them in a... You ever try to make them in a block? You ever do that? We, we've done it a couple of times. Oh, you mean to roast? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I some days roasting. you get it good, some days roasting. you don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, in Ethiopia, yeah. that's how they do it every they day. They do it in a walk or something a, like Yeah, it's a curved shape yeah. um, steel pan. Do you keep stirring the beans? All the time. Yeah. Because you want to get even heat distribution but in ethiopia that's what they're doing they're that's like, one of the things yeah. we used to go camping all the time and yeah with the scouts and so on or, or personally we used to always take beans and try and roast them and that's have our cool. own because never did that, you're yeah. out in the wilderness it's yeah it's so nice to have an amazing cup of coffee out there you know so you took mean? green beans that's yes so cool. yeah and roasted them I we always brought a walk and yeah and i but, always felt you had to keep moving them otherwise it was how'd uneven. you grind did you bring a we, we just brought a... Uh, smash them with rocks? Or? Yeah. No, we, we brought a, um, a blade grinder. We always had power. You had like power. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the way they do it in Ethiopia is they have a hollowed out log and they have a pounder that's... They do it like a mortar and pestle? And it's like, it's about three, four feet long. Really? And they're lifting it and they're... They're like, it's like a pile driver. Yeah, that's interesting. And um, they do that... For five, it's, I've done it. It's it's really exhausting. Yeah, but that's what they do. So there's one person who's tending the fire, and 
and they have a clay pot with water, trying to get the water close to boil. Then they have one person in that curved metal thing with a tool to turn over. Often it's wood, sometimes it's metal. A tool just to keep turning over the beans to keep the heat distribution. And then they let those beans cool. They dump them in the hollowed out log. And then different people take turns pounding them on that pile driver. Wow. Then they dump the ground beans into the boiling water pot on the wood fire. And then after a couple minutes, they literally pour it through a strainer. So no press, no anything? No, just... it's pure immersion. And, uh, Does it taste muddy? or? Um, it's pretty, I've never had a real, yeah, I frankly have never had a good cup of coffee. Yeah. But when you're invited into the tribal yeah, of hut course. and the dirt floor and you're part of the yeah, When in Rome, family. right? It, yeah. <laughs> so it's amazing. But it, I bet it never tastes I bet great. it still tastes better yeah. than Maxwell House. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. <laughs> but it's usually pretty darn thick. Yeah. And you're drinking in the equivalent kind of like coffee that I could chew. Yeah. I, yeah. I don't yeah. know. I always liked really... When, when it's you do a, a yeah. pour-over versus uh, espresso or something, there are different bodies, right? And what I find is my French press tends to make a little more... Well, let me clarify. Body... The term body, the way I define it is, yeah. it's the it's the force with which the flavor is projected into your senses. Okay. So you can have delicate body, light body, medium body, and full body, and everything in between that spectrum. So what would the term of viscosity then, uh, like the thickness of the liquid, like this could be thin tea or uh, yeah, something that, with a little that's more? that's Bruce Renth. Okay. That's not body. Because you can brew, we're talking about proportion of coffee to water. Right. So if you violate sort of the golden proportions of coffee to water and either grind extra fine and or add more coffee to water, but it's a delicate bean, you're not going to increase the body. You're going to increase the extraction strength. Okay. It's a tricky concept. I don't know. There's certain ones that, that I know if I put more coffee and less water, I get a more hearty liquid, you know. You're getting a thicker... Yeah. You're getting a higher extraction. Especially, and for those, it's a Think French press. Think about it, it's less water and more coffee. Yeah, right. Um, My wife doesn't appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she don't like that coffee. Yeah. To pour a lot of milk in hers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's... Um, yeah. It's a different way of doing stuff. I mean, we, our thing is, we want to have, we want our customers to experience the same taste sensation, no matter which cafe they go to, and no matter who's behind the bar, yeah. it should all be the same. So that's sort of we train everybody, and that's why we brew everything the the same way. It, all of oh, consistency is important. Yeah, right? it's predictable and consistent. And well, this is part of my experimentation, right? Let's yeah. try more beans. Let's try less beans. Let's try more water. Let's try less yeah. water, right? Well, you know. So when it goes down and to you, the, And you get different things that... You are you know, talking about brewing or roasting? Both. Yeah, because when you're brewing... Remember we talked about higher elevation beans? Okay, so if you take a Brazil that's grown closer to sea level than a Bolivia, which has grown way up high in the mountains... The Bolivia could be up to 20% more density. 
So if you fill if you fill a cylinder, which is called a densitometer, if you fill a graduated cylinder of a certain type that we use in our lab with Brazilian beans, it'll weigh. And for the sake of exaggeration, Let, let's walk over here and look at green beans for a second. Yeah. So it'll be because be, I've noticed that they're different size, shape, density, density. To your point, right? So it could be. You could have the same volume, and this is the scoop problem. You could have the same volume of a Brazilian bean weighing 100 grams. Yeah. And you fill that tube with Bolivian beans, and it'll be 200 grams. So that's why you have to use a scale in a nutshell. And, and in layman's terms, I've roasted the same amount of coffee, and one of them in two minutes, they're... they're... You can smell that immediately. Oh, yeah. It's a very sweet Sumatra. They get very grassy. Yeah. This is one of my favorites, actually. So that's a dark green jade. Yeah. Smell it. It's very sweet. I don't. I can smell it, just yeah, overwhelmingly. And this, um, you can look at the bean. Sumatra never sorts for size. Yeah. So this is a relatively low elevation bean that takes on heat faster than other beans. And the challenge with with roasting Sumatra is. By the way, I should tell the listeners, we're in a... It's a 55... 50... Or no, a 30-something gallon brute food-grade container. And it's loaded with green beans that he's just scooped a handful out. Yeah. So look at the... smells like grass to me. It could really... That's a round pea berry. How do you know you were going to tell me how you tell a good bean versus a, you know, like fresh... Yeah, we'll we'll put some on the bench and we'll, we'll take a look. Um, so that's Sumatra. Oh, here's a really fine grade El Salvador. Totally different smell. Totally different smell. Look at the color. See how much lighter yeah. that is? Yeah. That's a lighter green. It's not the jade green. What does it smell like? Yeah. It smells like, like uh, latex paint to me. <laughs> <laughs> that funny. This doesn't have the sweetness yeah. that the Sumatra had. Not as grassy. But the beans look more uniform. These are sorted. Yep, they are way more uniform. This is an heirloom. A little smaller. It's a lot significantly smaller. That's an heirloom uh, bourbon bean. Here's an Ethiopia. This will be even smaller. These these roast fast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Think about it. The smaller the bean and the rounder the bean. Yeah. And these are small and round. When they're rotating in a drum, they're going to transfer. They're going to take on heat and transfer heat more quickly. Yeah. So roasting Ethiopia is totally different. These I know. Is this Yergashefi? Or Yerga how do you Shef- say that? Yergashefi. Yeah. Um, this is a Sadamo. Okay. Yeah. I've I've roasted this too. Yeah. It looks familiar to me. That's the Lyo Tarano. This is. You'll smell this. This is hilarious. This is one of my projects in Myanmar with USAID, where I'm a taste consultant. Mm-hmm. Smell that. Yeah. That's fermented fruit. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. That's what they have a, a really this fruity. Is super sweet. Yeah. Very, very fruity. This is a natural bean. Now, this is a lot bigger than the ones, and it's a little like a greener almost like a it's not as green as a Sumatra but it's greener than the El Salvador the second one and this so is does the me color and size make a difference in the taste 
It depends on how you roast it. Depends on how you roast it. Okay. Um, it's knowing how to roast the size of the bean or the sort of the bean. It does make a difference. This is the same. Uh, oh, here's a here's a very sweet Columbia. This crop just came in last week. This is a brand new crop. This will smell really sweet. That's a Nourinho. Mm, yeah. It's almost like honey. Yeah. Wow, this that's is not this is not sorted for size. But they're generally a smaller bean. But they're it's a larger bean than the Ethiopia. So here I have a bean that has like a coating on it, right? It that's a called skin. a silver skin. Right. Yeah. And that good, that becomes good, bad, the chaff. And different. That's the chaff that comes off. But some have them, some don't. So when you get to the bottom of one of these barrels, is the chaff all like Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of chaff. Yeah. Some beans are polished, which we don't prefer. We prefer them not be polished. Like in Hawaii, they polish the beans to remove the silver skin. Why? Um, Just to practice? or Well, or the, frankly, because they're selling to the Asian market, where yeah. cosmetics are more important. Mm -hmm. But I have reasons to believe that you get a better taste when you leave the silver skin on. And I use the chaff in our compost, um, in our garden. It's great for composting. But this has all the silver skin left on it. It comes off in a venturi after uh, caramelization. One thing I noticed, and I'll say this, when you're at home and you, even if you're outside, Here's the and you, you roast coffee, you get that coffee roasted smell. There's none of that smell in this building. Yeah, yeah. It all goes out your chimney, I guess, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do your neighbors say? <laughs> oh, they love it. They do. Yeah. 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 Do they... We put in an afterburner yeah. uh, because there's no law for this size roaster in the state of New Jersey requiring that we scrub it. Smell how sweet that is. Because because if you're at home, you want to roast outside or yeah. someplace. Yeah. Because if you roast in your kitchen, your whole house is going to smell like roasted coffee, which isn't a bad thing. Yeah. But sometimes you're like, yeah. the funny thing that I find is after I roast coffee, I actually don't want to... I want it to rest for a couple of days, but I don't want a cup of coffee after that because I'm sensory overload from the roasting. Really? really? Yeah. 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 You don't, you don't, well, maybe we'll find out when you roast or whether you but smell it But this is the not. sweetest one we've had yeah. to smell all along. Hmm. What this, is this one? This is a Yurgachev. Yeah. Yeah. Very small. Yeah. So how do they make, how do they... You always see the pictures of the people. They're standing with rakes and they're raking yeah, the yeah, stuff yeah. out. And they're raking it in the little sluices, the little waterways, where they're just trying to agitate and clean. And what's happening is it's inside. Um, this bean it has a hard shell, a thin hard shell like a peanut called yeah. a pergamino. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to activate the mucilage, which is enzymatically the sweetener that's going to do the starch to sugar conversion of the bean. So they're trying to actively make that process happen before they transfer it to the fermentation tank. Interesting. What What do you want to roast for first? What do you want to... I have no preference. I will leave it to you. So let's... You like the dark, chocolatey... I do. Let's start with it, uh, Sumatra. Okay. If, if I have a preference that I've, I've roasted several of these, that's always what I, that's my go-to, yeah. actually. 
I know that's probably pedestrian, isn't it? <laughs> Sumatra is the bean I probably started on. I think it's the most approachable to 20 people, years right? Ago. Yeah. So let's weigh out. There's a place we go to for a holiday party at work every year. And I don't know what it is they have, but when I drink their coffee, their coffee is so good. And if I roast a Sumatra and I do it well, that's what their coffee tastes like. And I don't, I don't know what it is, is it? about you know this place. Um, let me think, the name is escaping me. I can picture it's a country club place in, in the Princeton area. And, and their coffee oh, in an urn. No. Or, or Cherry Valley? or I, I'll look it up because yeah. we, we have our holiday event there. But their coffee is good. <laughs> Every year when we go there, I remember how good their coffee is. Hmm. We're going to a different place this year. <laughs> I just looked it up because it's coming. Two hundred grams, flat on. And you don't want the you don't want the beans to be refrigerated or hot. You want them to be, you know, fifty-five to seventy degrees, seventy-five degrees. So this is two hundred grams. Um, I want two eighty-five. Even just that sitting there, I could smell the grassy notes from that. Yeah. Just. From here, that tells you how fresh they are, right? Oh yeah, that you have. Them. So yeah, we'll look at some on the bench, so to speak, and I'll go through some of the beans. The problem is, it's going to be difficult to find what we call defects because the beans that we have. I should have brought you some so, of mine. <laughs> I told you I found that bag that was really old. I yeah, forgot it. Yeah, it was stuck in a place, and and I but should have brought is, them for comparison. On an ongoing basis, we. We collect like that's that's a pergamino. Yeah, that's a bean that they forgot to husk. This is an immature bean with a little bit of fungus that's curled. So pergamino, this one it's is the yellow shell. in color. Yeah, and it has the shell that they forgot. Oh, to Oh, that's take interesting. Off. Not forgot it, just looked through. This is an immature. Do they literally sit and pick through the beans when um, they're going through? The big companies have optical sorters, yeah. little blowers, where they sort it for density and color. Mm -hmm. And then in Ethiopia, it's all done by hand. Yeah. All these women, wow. folded legs. They just, just like literally. Lucy, Lucy and Ethel picking through? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's unbelievable. So for those who are listening, he's got a... This is a little like bit of Like an iced tea jug, and it's got a little bit of burned coffee and... Uh, roasted, really, really dark, and the beans that he's showing me here that that got picked through and some Here's that are stone. Yeah, nice. That comes through from the sorting and yeah. could destroy your grinder. That's an immature bean. It would taste horrible. It's tiny and curly. It, it was picked before it came to fruition. There's another. These stones are huge. They're huge. How could you miss that? Yeah. So we're careful. We. Catch They're about the stuff. size of a pinky nail. Yeah. Or bigger thumbnail. So there are some beans with chips in them from milling. You'll see that more in the. Uh, it's funny because as soon as you show me this and I'm looking at this pile sitting here, I can pick out the ones that 
you know, you were telling me. And about. these are from three places. These are from the roasted, from the unroasted, and then the burnt ones are sometimes uh, what's left just from something gets stuck in they there. They get stuck in there and we clean them out. from the vein. Yeah. But, but when we look at this, this is Sumatra. Let's step over in better light. This is really, really clean Sumatra. Historically, Sumatra is ugly visually and horrible. Like, this is wet milled. That's called a chip. Mm -hmm. um, that's from the machine not being adjusted totally properly. And when it removes the pulp, the knife blade hits Mix that it. bean, and then that becomes a place where the bean can get rotten. Here. That's a boar beetle that drilled a hole in the end of that kernel there. Oh, yeah. That's okay. called broca. Um, there's a better example of the broca. See those two holes? Yeah. That's the... Uh, what does broca mean? Broca. That's, um, that's basically the Spanish name for um, a bean that has been infested by beetles. What they do is they bore inside here and they leave a path of poop when they leave. Okay, like this one here? Yeah. One. And it, yeah, they're little pinholes. It's just inevitable, right? There's going to be in here. There's an immature bean. See that funny curl? Yeah, yeah I've seen that They pick before. it. They pick it. It's not quite, it's got a weird striated discoloration. Um, yeah, it's got a banana shape to it instead of being flat. And think about it. The best beans that we have, you make three or four passes over the course of several weeks or maybe even a month because you're only picking the ripest bean that's ready to be picked. Yeah. In a lot of these places, they're just going, and they're putting their hand on it, and they're stripping it off and just taking it all, and that's it. They're stripping it off. You're making off a branch. motion like stripping it right down the branch yeah. instead of selectively that pick picking out berry by berry. Yeah. yeah, we want the guys who pick berry by berry. So if you look here, there's a fair amount of that broca. There's a fair amount of the bug that's working its way through the bean. Yeah, so what he's showing me is each of these beans have like a little pinhole in the end. Some of them have a couple. So there's a whole protocol where you see how discolored that is? Yeah. That's going to be a bad, immature bean. Um, so what hap So when you look closely here, that's a chipped bean Yeah. that was completely broken off in the mill. That's called a partial sour. Is it, it is ferments. it sour? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. And so obviously, there's a certain acceptable amount, right? And in, well, technically, you go country by country mm -hmm. because if this were Guatemala, I'd never have bought it. Okay. Um, but for Sumatra, this is what's called EP. It's a European process. Yeah. They've gone through and. Um, selected out and sorted it a third time or normally they often just sort twice so you pay more for the third sort and still you get crap like this right um and if you think about it philosophically the reason why ethiopia can taste so good and have so much complexity and nuance is because they don't sort for size the beans take on heat 
in different ways. So each bean is being developed chemically for a different taste because the small bean is going to contribute more chocolate where the larger bean is going to contribute more tangerine. So I had a whole list of questions and I think we probably hit 90% of them, but that was one blending right yeah do you blend certain things to get different profiles do you blend we do before or after you know yeah there's what's called melange blending and there's pre-blending blend the bean and roast them together which to me if we took an ethiopian bean those smaller ones and put it in with this they'd be burned by the time these are roasted right um not necessarily okay it depends on the profile you choose and how you blend them it's a matter so of the you, proportion So you of do a, a lowest common denominator and build a profile that suits both beans, is in, in harmony with both of them. In an oversimplified way, yeah. But what you're doing is you're tasting all different ways of doing it until you find the one that accentuates the tastes the way you want them. Yeah. If you want to recognize the presence of Ethiopia, there's a threshold detectable percentage of Ethiopian beans you have to have or they'll be lost in the Sumatra. Okay. So in broad strokes, most people blend because of economics. You blend because you're trying to hide something. You blend because you're using maybe past crop beans or beans that are old and lost their liveliness because all of the first thing to go is acidity. The the organoleptics volatilize. They basically evaporate in the air and your beans are going to taste pretty bad after six, eight months. So if you're an artisanal roaster, then blending is very challenging and your role is to find substitute beans that are currently in season that will give you and preserve the flavor that the customer is identifying with that roast, albeit throughout the year. And we have three or four blends like that where we're substituting beans maybe six times a year to keep it fresh and to keep it tasting right. Okay. But the highest expression of our art form is single estate, single origin beans, not blended beans. But when you think about it, blending, you gotta be really careful when you talk about blending because you could get beans from a farm that are four different varietals and different percentages. And that in itself is a blend. So are you talking about varietal blend? You can think about what we do for, we're beekeepers, right? Yeah. Our honeys taste different from one hive to the next. So yeah. you can get there, it just philosophically, right? Yeah. Sometimes if you want soupy honey, they're gonna, they're yeah. gonna blend certain things that they know are gonna be the soupy taste or whatever that may be. Right. And, and right. you know, chances are, we don't wanna do that. We want our honey because it tastes natural and fresh. Yeah. And, and it's like wine, right? That's yeah. different. So no two years will be the same. just philosophically, you could try to blend. Maybe you have an acidic and a chocolatey, and you want both notes, right? But yeah. I, I, you'd have to be a pretty good Frankenstein to figure that stuff out. So we, and most people don't go that route, right? We, That's a we little... do that with our blends. Some people are way into their blends. Yeah. Um, most people in the coffee world do blends to make more money and to be cheap and to get rid of either what they overbought or got or get rid of something that's past its prime. Um, and the reason you roast it dark, to put a footnote on that, is because 
charcoal obscures and masks underlying defects. Yeah. A bean will taste like burlap, what we call baggy, if it's past crop. The only way to get rid of that without throwing away the bean is to roast the crap out of it to where the charcoal will mask and obscure that otherwise dominating What do you flavor. do with your old beans? We don't have old beans. Never. Good. We, we buy so carefully that we that we kind of know what we're doing. We're always, we always yeah. have a purpose for what we have. We, 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 there's always a use for them. Yeah. yeah. We're really careful. We keep really good track of what we buy. And we kind of know, so we know what, we, we kind of know the quantities we should be getting. Um, but that's, that's an important part of running a business is knowing where and when to tie up your money. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So here we're exactly where we want to be. I'm going to take 200 grams of Sumatra, dump it in the hopper, which is the top feeder that's going to dump the beans into the rotating drum. So I'm back to tail off the end of this episode. I hope you found that interesting. I just had a blast and um, so many different topics I wanted to ask him questions about. And there's still more to come. I wanted to uh, take a quick moment and say, as I said in the opening, Dave is a beekeeper. And Dave and I had a conversation one time about beekeeping back April 2016. And it was in that episode, episode number 93, called Roho, that Dave and I spoke about recording this particular session. And I'm glad that it has finally come to fruition. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that there's a second part, part two. That one's not as long, but uh made this one a little longer because I thought the best place to break the episode was all of the discussion we had and then the point where we literally turn and roast coffee from scratch and go through that process. During the conversation, of course, we talked about the coffee shop located in Lambertville. There is a website. It's rojosroastery.com, R-O-J-O, which is Spanish for red. On there, there's a video of Dave that was featured on Vimeo on the homepage and other information about their locations and things they do. So if you're interested, rojosroastery.com is Dave's website. Again, I'll be back for part two, two weeks from now, and I hope you enjoyed this and interested in getting your feedback. If you had any questions for David, let me know. I do intend at some point to um, go back and record a second part and have been roasting coffee successfully since our conversation uh, definitely amped up the game. With that, I'm going to say... To all you beekeepers who are listening, like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everyone, and be well. We'll be back with a regular episode next Sunday.